you're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. For the next few weeks, we'll be taking a break, and so we're playing you some of our favourite stories from the All The Best archives. We'll be back with new stories in July. In this country, successive governments have and continue to implement cruel and inhumane policies regarding refugees. For Refugee Week, we're sharing two stories about the continued mistreatment and imprisonment of people seeking asylum on stolen land. In our first story, we travel to Mianjin, Brisbane, where last year activists blockaded a makeshift detention centre, demanding more than 100 refugees and asylum seekers be set free. For most of us, 2020 has been a strange year, and that's certainly true for Dane DeLeon. I think about that often, where sometimes, did I ask to be here in 2020? Um, This was not on my vision board, no. I said at the start of the year, this is going to be the chillest year (laughs) of my life. Like, I thought I was going to finish my master's and try to get more people of color involved in community organizing, um, go back to the Philippines for a little bit, and, you know, exercise, have more smoothies. And that's not what it looked like. 2020 curveballs. It was a plot twist. (laughs) For one thing, Dane didn't expect to end up in the police watch house, or for that matter, who she'd find when she got out. I remember the first time when I was arrested, I gave my phone to somebody and their first instinct was to call my mom. And that was, so, I was like, you are definitely white. You would never do that if you were someone from an ethnic background. You don't call someone's mom when you get arrested. But my mom was waiting outside the watch house. It was the worst feeling in the world. I was like, I'm cancelled. Did you know she was going to no. be there? No, I didn't. What was the expression on her face like? Yeah, I was just... You know, with like ethnic moms and they're like, we're talking about this at home, that look, because I had some friends there. And so she wasn't yelling at me there because she was just looking at me like, we're going to talk about this later. <laughs> Dane's 26 years old, studying her Masters of Development Practice in Brisbane, though she's originally from the Philippines. And earlier in the year, not long after Queensland and other states went into lockdown, Dane received a message out of the blue. The message came from some refugees being detained inside a hotel in inner-city Brisbane. A few of the men inside followed me on Instagram and or Facebook and just let us know what's happening. Dane had heard some news about another hotel in Melbourne, the Mantra. That's when they did the hunger strikes. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time that happened. But before that, I didn't know that there was a prison um, inside Kangaroo Point. And I think that's... I guess before all the protests, nobody knew that there was a prison. I know a lot of people that go to uni or even live in surrounding suburbs didn't know about it. I guess that's always been the government's plan, right, to um, out of sight, out of mind when they were in offshore processing centres. But now they're here, it's almost impossible to ignore. 
The Kangaroo Point Central Hotel was holding over 100 men, many of whom had come to Australia for medical treatment under the now repealed Medivac legislation. Dane had heard of the bill. But I guess I just thought with Medivac, because he came here to seek treatment, I didn't think they would lock people out in detention, especially because a lot of people came for mental health reasons due to long-term detention. I guess I didn't think that their strategy was to lock them up some more. And so when Dane was contacted by a few of the men inside, she had to help. It was during COVID times as well. So um, I was doing a few like mutual aid groups with people to support uh, people around my suburb who couldn't go outside and just delivering um, food for them or getting picking up groceries for them. So I was already in that framework of community and mutual aid and reaching out to people. So it, it just was one of those things where I said, I need groceries. Also, I need to free the uh, men in detention. This, can anyone help me with these things? The men had been protesting from their balconies, holding signs and banners for passers-by to see. And so Dane and some other protesters joined them from the street. The men weren't allowed to leave the hotel, and because of COVID restrictions, they weren't allowed visitors either. For the protesters, COVID restrictions meant they had to pretend to exercise as they demonstrated outside the detention centre. But despite these challenges and a heavy police presence, the protests grew as more and more people heard about the men's plight and restrictions began to ease in Brisbane. They've tried to remove um, refugees. After a few months of the protests, one of the more outspoken men, Fahad, was transferred to a higher security detention centre near the Brisbane airport. I remember the first night when um, Fahad was taken and, you know, we tried to stop the transfer and then somebody, one of our friends, got his tent out from his car and he's like, well, we're not leaving. And we just never left after that incident. We just had the clothes in our back. People started coming with sleeping bags and food. And I remember we were thinking, we were so just so optimistic at that time. And we said, okay, if we hang in here until Wednesday, I think that'll be good. And maybe we will win this. The blockade had been up a few days when council officers and police came to remove some of the protesters' tents and marquees. Dame was live streaming when a police officer gave her a move on direction. If she fails to comply, she will be arrested. So I'm going to give you one last opportunity to comply with the direction or else you will be arrested. Sorry, we, we actually need um, confirmation from the business that we're supposedly get, causing anxiety. All right, at this point in time, as I told you, my name's Consul Dunn. You're going to be placed on arrest for contravene requirement, OK? Wait, no. OK, no, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, no. wait. Wait, I have it, you have People tried to de-arrest me by sitting around um, us, but the cop, because I'm so small, the cops just picked me up and put me in the van. We gave you ample opportunity to comply with no, the direction. No, you didn't. And you failed to do so. No, you didn't. Were you nervous? With my mom, Yes. But the cops, no. I'm not afraid of anything except for my mother. <laughs> so I think, I know she understands and she cares, but my mother very loves very aggressively and shows it, yeah, very tough. I just told her that it wasn't a real charge and it was fine. 
eventually the charges were dropped, so it was true. I think my parents, deep down, they understand, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing this. I think it's more the concern of my safety, which which makes a lot of sense. I think any parent would be concerned their child, um, you know, five cops taking them in a van. What did you feel at the time? I think I was more, I guess, concerned about people, how the blockade was going to go. Because when I got arrested, the Brisbane City Council was trying to take all the tents down and was trying to get rid of the blockade. And I was so scared that when I come out, it won't be there anymore. But it was nice because, not nice, but my arrest was live streamed. And a lot of people did say that after seeing that, that's when they felt the need to come down and come help out. The blockade had survived. And we'll said, okay, maybe two weeks. We'll see what happens in two weeks. And then like months passed and it's just grown and grown. And I think it's just been really special to, that's one of those moments when people feel empowered because you're actively, you know, stopping transfers and putting pressure on the government. It's not a good look for the government if the community is sleeping on the floor because they want the friends inside to be released. From there, they began planning some bigger rallies. And thousands of people turned out, blocking streets and attracting a lot of attention. I think, for me, it felt empowering to see people show up. And the most special thing is to be able to hear from the guys inside, so... You know, it's not somebody speaking on behalf of them. They're just saying what they're feeling. I think specifically the Kangaroo Point situation, it's so surreal to just have them so close to us, just two metres away, but this arbitrary border that the government's created, which prevents them from being out in the community. And for Dane and the others, they've always stressed that their protest is in solidarity with the men and guided by them. They have been the people that I turn to that have given me the strength and given me the motivation. And um, they're so wise and understanding because they know the system for, um, what, seven years. All we need to do is be there and listen because they have answers. So for the foundations of it, since we said we're going to centre the voices of those affected and those um, who we will see as leaders, it's been, I guess, quite natural and quite organic that we're just the community and some of our community members are locked up inside and that should be enough to bond you together. In a way, that bond has become an integral part of Dane's activism. She says she spends up to seven hours a day on the phone with the men. Yeah, I I think a big part of it is friendship. When I ask most of the time, what can help? What can I do more? They always just say conversations like these help. And yeah, a lot of it is just maybe even just for an hour or two for them to not think about the fact that they're detained inside and just talk about Sometimes they want to hear about your mundane things about your day. Same conversations like, have you eaten? They say yes. I had chicken and rice. And they ask me if I've eaten. And they'll say, no, I forgot. And then they'll remind me to eat. 
a few of them、um, have plants that they talk about, which is very nice.、Um, coffee in the morning, almost the same as the mundane things out here, but just in awful, awful conditions. And there's no space there to go for a walk, but a lot of the times they talk about what they see outside the window. They'll see a couple going out on a date. They'll see somebody getting their car washed. Or they'll see drunk people downstairs on a Friday night, oftentimes talking about what they can see outside the city that they can't touch. Yeah. For almost 80 days, the men saw their friends on the street, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But in August, after making so much noise, the blockade quietly scaled back, and the men were still inside. It does feel like a bit of a goodbye to let go of the blockade, but a part of me, like my back was hurting. I have to see a physio now because my back is just from sleeping in my car for that long. There was a little bit of relief, and the community is still there, even though I think it sucks not having it visibly there because it's, you know, it's so special to have this blockade in the middle of the city trying to free the guys. But Dane says this is far from the end.、Uh, because we we've spent during the blockade time upskilling people and making sure we have police liaison trainings and legal briefings, and、um, even trainings on cultural sensitivity with engaging with the men inside. So people are a lot more empowered now. It was like a, a boot camp or something. <laughs> yeah, it kind of felt like it. Yeah, I think we really emphasize that where we don't want just. Good moments, and then you go home, and then you take your activist box. We really emphasize on that invisible labor. What's on the mood on the vision board now? The vision board now is to end mandatory detention, and、um, you know, abolish the police. Does it have a timeline? Um, I really would like to.、Um, I'm hoping. I'm still fighting for freeing. We want the guys to be free by the end of the year. Do you think it'll happen? I think so. Yeah. If we say no, then that gives the possibility of it not happening. So I would say yes. What about your friends inside? Do you think they are optimistic? Um, they do get moments of hope, and I think when they see the community showing up for the longest time, they felt so alone, and all they've seen were circle guards and police. To see just people out there saying that. They're welcome, and we love them, and we support them.、Um, has meant a lot to them. You know, after actions, it's quite distressing, and you need to debrief because it is quite traumatic with all the police. And usually, I feel very tired physically, but usually, I feel so full because I'll get the messages from the guys inside saying how much hope it's given them, and how much. It lifted their mood, or maybe they've been having a bad week, and that was the one thing that made them smile. So I think moments like that sustain me. That story was produced by Max Rowley and Naveen Samreji. The supervising producer was Mel Chun. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni Peters. 
at all the best you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our second story, we hear about the lack of support provided for refugees when they enter the community. Every year on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter, activists, religious organisations and NGOs gather for rallies around the country for refugee rights. This year there was a particular focus on the refugees who are still in detention offshore and those detained here in Australia after being brought here under the Medivac legislation. I'm a member of Refugee Action Coalition, which is one of the activist groups behind the Sydney rally. For eight years now, which is much longer than I've been involved, we've been calling for an end to offshore detention. And now some of those refugees who were detained offshore have finally been released from detention into the Australian community, and this year we were able to march alongside them. Thanush and Ramsia are two Tamil refugees who spoke at the Sydney rally. Yeah, my name is Thanush. I was in detention eight years of my life. Um, I got my freedom two months ago, and I got switching visa, six-month visa on temporary visa. My name is Ramsia. Mm, I am eight years in detention. First of all, I am in Manus Island six and a half years. Then I'm one year and three months in Mendra Hotel. Two months ago, I am released. Mm, really very happy to release, but our friends are still in detention. That's why I am worried about them. The decisions about who is released and when seem really arbitrary and it's reportedly creating quite a bit of despair and confusion for the guys who remain in detention, wondering when or if their time will come. So why is the government still clinging to keeping these men detained and spending so much money doing so? To answer that, we kind of need to zoom back through the last decade of politics in Australia. In 2013, Kevin Rudd famously told us that... From now on, any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia as refugees. Asylum seekers who'd arrived by boat were sent to detention centres overseas on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and in Nauru. And this was then held in place by successive governments with bipartisan support from Liberal and Labor. The boats will be stopped. Those passengers will never settle in this country. You have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The bipartisan position. We're going to take a very tough and rigorous approach. You will not be resettled in the Australia. The door to Australia is closed. You will those never who seek to come here in Australia by boat. Have a processing centre in Nauru. Because we are in command of our borders. A significant turning point was in 2019, when under mounting political pressure from the public, Parliament passed legislation that meant doctors could compel the government to medically evacuate unwell refugees from offshore detention for treatment in Australia. This legislation was passed with the support of Labor, Greens and some independent MPs, despite being firmly opposed by the sitting coalition government. Gradually, some refugees were brought to Australia on doctor's orders. But even then, they were kept in detention in hotels in Brisbane and Melbourne. 
many still haven't received the medical treatment that they were sent to Australia for. Now, through a long series of legal cases and seemingly arbitrary government decisions, some are being released. I asked Ramzia how it felt to get his freedom. Past eight years, I never heard any good news. All the immigration told me, you never ever settle in Australia. You will never resettle in Australia. Then, finally, we got after eight years, they said tomorrow is released. Really, that time, really, I can't believe that, but I um, look like flying, you know, really very happy, proud time. More than 1,200 of the people sent offshore in 2013 are now living in the Australian community. But their visas are completely uncertain. They can't reunite with family overseas. They have no access to education. They can't get access to Centrelink. They were denied JobSeeker and JobKeeper during the pandemic. Asylum seekers who are deemed to be refugees can't be forcibly sent back to their country of origin. But the government seems hell-bent on not giving them permanency either. I have to rebuild our life past eight years. That's very hard. After eight years, we are lots of pain. But after eight years, they give the six-month visa. This is not for the permanent solution for us. We need the permanent solution. Uh, I want to rebuild our life. When the Medivac refugees are released from hotel detention, they're given a six-month temporary bridging visa and just three weeks' accommodation. The government gives them $150 per week for the first three weeks, but there's no government support after that. <laughs> you know one thing, government, when I was in detention centre, day by one day they spent $1,000. Now, when I release, they give the $150 per week. This is... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do that. We don't have without job. $150, how do, how do you make that life? Really, I don't know that. Uh, I just for first dinner and lunch is finished already. <laughs> Without government financial support, they need to get jobs, but the temporary visa makes this really difficult. With temporary visa, we couldn't find job easily because all the companies expect the permanent visa holder. We are temporary visa holder. I don't know after six months what will happen, but uh, we have lots of support and love from community. They are look after us. We're here because we believe taking action makes a difference. It's the only reason our brothers are out here with us today. We have a number of them in this crowd today. Over the years, successive Australian governments have effectively made these guys a political football to prove how hard they can make their border policies. These refugees have gone through immense amounts of pain, all because they've been made a scapegoat over a political issue about boat arrivals. With temporary visas, no financial support, and still worried for many of their friends who are still in detention, that pain is still not over. If you ask me, the whole thing is infuriating and we should all be really angry about it. I asked Thanush what he thought. Are you angry after eight years? <laughs> Definitely, but um, eight years of my life were taken from them with no reason. It's very hard things, uh, but I know the value of freedom and pain of being separate from family. But my wish is no one ever lose their freedom uh, with no reason or they not 
lost their connection with family. That story was produced by Matilda Fay. best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>